WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is 88.9 The Impact's one-hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the MSU community. And now, tonight's Exposure. Welcome to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Tonight on Exposure, we have chemical engineering professor Jeff Sakamoto, and he'll be here to talk about the three grants MSU received to allow MSU to lead the way in alternative energy research. Also, we have geography professors uh, Alan Arbogast, as well as anthropology professor Lynn Goldstein, and anthropology PhD student Terry Brock, and they will be here to talk about the discovery of a 16,000-year-old sand dune discovered on MSU's campus. MSU Democrats President Mitchell Rivard will also be in to talk about the rally held today at the Capitol regarding the Michigan Promise Scholarship. Also in the studio, we will have Mark Maribate, a screenwriter in Hollywood who grew up in mid-Michigan as a part of the One Book, One Community event, and he'll be here to talk about how books translate into the big screen. He will also speak tomorrow at 7 p.m. in the Lincoln Room in the Kellogg Center. Also on the show tonight, we will have comedian Hassan Minhaj, and he uh, he'll, he is featured in fnfunny.com, and he was uh, the comic to watch in 2008. He also is the two-time finalist in NBC's Stand Up for Diversity in 2007 and 2008, and he'll be on the show, and he will also be performing this weekend at the Izone Campout on Saturday at 10 p.m. And then we'll also finish up the hour with our new StoryCorps series. Um, but before we get to the interviews tonight, I want to let you know about the news today. In World News Today, according to the United Nations, some 100 heads of state gathered at the UN today for an unprecedented day-long conference on combating climate change, with leaders like President Obama and Hu Jintao of China acknowledging that agreement is an important goal, but also stressing their own needs. Negotiations have been struggling to hammer out a deal to cut global emissions by December in Copenhagen, and the United Nations organizers are hoping that gathering the leaders will give the talks new political momentum. Mr. Hu said that while China had made great strides in development, it is still lagging relatively in terms of wealth per individual, and that had to be taken into account in fighting emissions. And in national news, severe flooding in northern Georgia has killed seven people, submerging homes, knocked out power, and turned streams into rivers while refilling reservoirs after a lengthy drought in southeastern United States, according to Reuters. Governor Sonny Perdue asked President Barack Obama today to declare a state of emergency for Georgia because of the flooding, which a state uh, climatologist said was the worst in 100 years in some parts of Atlanta. And in Michigan news, Michigan lawmakers are negotiating towards a budget deal with a deadline now eight days away. Legislative leaders say they hope to have agreements on most of the 15 bills that make up the budget by the end of today, according to Michigan Public Radio Network. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce my next guest to the show. Welcome to the show, professors um, Alan Arbogast, uh, Lynn Goldstein, and PhD student Terry Brock. It's a pleasure to be here. Hello. Hello. So talk about the sand dune that you discovered in August. Okay. Um, the uh, sand dune, I'm Lynn Goldstein, the sand dune was discovered um, as part of the campus archaeology program. And in campus archaeology, what we do is the university regularly, um, as part of construction and as part of, it, as part of its regular activities, constructs and destructs 
um, any number of things across campus. Anything from buildings going up to lampposts to trees that fall over, um, they're always putting up something or taking down something. And in doing that, um, they now, the university now allows us, campus archaeology, to come in and try and check to see um, what's there um, before that construction happens. And so in this particular area, we knew that there was this big hill there, this area being right behind Dem Hall, uh, Demonstration Hall, and between there and Mun Arena. And the question was, was, was this a sand dune? Was this a big pile of sand, or was this really a sand dune? And so we knew this was an area of interest to us, and we wanted to see what it was. So we asked the Landscape Services, part of physical plant, if we could, when they took, before they put in a new tree, the tree had fallen as part of a storm, would they allow us to get in there and look? and dig maybe the hole a little deeper than they would for a new tree. And we explained why, that we wanted to see if it was really a, a natural feature or something man-made, and they agreed. So we called Dr. Arbogast, who is a specialist in the study of sand dunes. Now, Dr. Arbogast, um, being a specialist in sand dunes, why is finding a sand dune unique in this area? Well, for several reasons, really. Uh, anyone living in Michigan and who spends any time at the Great Lakes, perhaps you have, uh, when they think of sand dunes in the region, they automatically think of the magnificent dunes over along Lake Michigan, like at Warren Dunes, Sleeping Bear, places like that. Uh, there are dunes that are inland from the lake shores, um, in many cases, many, many miles. But most of them, at least everything that I've seen up to this point in time, is far to the north, say, up around Houghton Lake and places north of that. Uh, I've been interested in this particular feature for a long time, really ever since I arrived in 1995, because it looks like a sand dune. Um, but uh, my assumption, uh, along with some other people that I talked to about it, was that it had to be at least, at the very least, heavily modified by construction, or that it was a man-made feature altogether. Um, to clarify one thing, a sand dune is, is, a, is a landform that uh, is created by blowing sand at some point in time in the past. It's no different than what you find along the lake shore today. The question was, was this something that had created, had, been, had formed in that way this far inland, this far south in the state, and just happened to be on the MSU campus un, in an undisturbed state? So when uh, Lynn and her team contacted me about the possibility of taking a close look at that feature, I jumped at the chance because it was something that I wanted to do all along, but knew that access to it would be very difficult. So when she called, Terry contacted me about getting involved. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that, no sweat. So, I mean, I know the area that you're talking about. There's kind of a little hill, but how can grass and trees still grow on a sand dune? Yeah, um, a common misconception is that a sand dune is something that has to be blowing around and active now. If you go to Ludington, places like that, you'll see bare sand all over the place that is moving around on a, on a daily basis or a seasonal basis. Sand dunes can also be heavily vegetated, too. The vegetation is what sort of anchors the dune in place. And very simply what happens at some point in time in the past, we know that the dune was blowing, it was moving, uh, probably blew up out of the, the red cedar floodplain as it exists, as existed at that point in time. And then over a period of time, it, uh, vegetation expanded across that, grass, and then finally trees, and 
then it was sort of stabilized. And, and what did MSU's campus look like uh, 16,000 years ago? Well, that's the million-dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard, it's difficult to imagine. For one thing, the whole area had been encased in ice for several thousand years in the most recent ice age. It's hard to find a modern analog to that kind of an environment because the only continental ice sheets are in Antarctica and Greenland today. Uh, do those places look like what the MSU area looked like at that point in time? Nobody knows because nobody was around here at that point. So we do know that the ice retreated from the area, it sort of melted away. Um, about 16 or 17,000 years ago. And that's the logical time in which a sand dune around here would form because that's when the place would have been very poorly vegetated and sand in, in areas around campus could have then been blowing by the wind. So finding a sand dune that's 16,000 years old, um, what type of information can we gather from it besides the dune itself? Can we find out about... Um, I mean, can you find fossils in it? Or, I mean, what else can, can it tell you other than the fact that it was there 16,000 years ago? Well, I'll let the, the two of them uh, discuss the archaeological implications of that. But from a geological and a geographic point of view, which is my primary interest, it tells us something about the environment in what became the MSU campus at that point in time. We know that there had to be a source area where sand was that was poorly vegetated, and that the wind had to be strong enough at that point in time to move the sand from one place to another forming that ridge. Um, because the, the ages on that are so old, we also know that the sand dune must have stabilized fairly quickly and that it would remain stable for the millennia after that because otherwise we would have had younger sand deposits contained within it. So that tells us something about the environment of the area at that point and also the environment after the dune formed. So that's interesting. From a geographical perspective, to find it this far inland tells now, us a lot. Now, what else have MSU archaeologists found on campus? Well, we've done a lot of work all over campus um, since, as I'm sure everyone has noticed, that MSU is constantly engaged in construction projects. Um, and one of the most recent finds was just last week after uh, the the sand dune discovery. And, and that was that we, we discovered uh, when we got in, when they were working on sidewalks, um, replacing sidewalks by Beaumont Tower, uh, we uncovered the northeast corner of College Hall, which was the first building ever built on our campus, built in 1856. Um, so that's just one example. That's probably the best example of, of, uh, of what we discovered. Um, but that's an incredibly significant find because that's the place where MSU was born, and that's where land-grant education happened for the very first time. Um, and, and, and it's the, the predecessor for everything everything that's happened since here is, at MSU. Is that the same dorm that was burnt down that they kind no, of... That's, no, that's the dorm we excavated in 2005. Okay. That's Saint, known as Saint's Rest. But I want to go back to the sand dune for a second, though, too. One of the things that's interesting about that sand dune from a cultural perspective is that sand dune wouldn't be there if it wasn't for what MSU did. In other words, MSU did a lot of things that destroyed landforms and you know because of all the experimenting in the land grant work but it also in this case saved that sand dune because the person who in forestry who um, saved that sand dune did so because MSU had bought land 
south of where its main campus was to start expanding agriculture to, to, to work more land. And in doing that, um, had discovered this sand dune that was there, and sand started blowing into the fields and various other places, and it became a real problem. And it's a problem for farmers all over the state. So the question is, what do you do with it? Farmers don't want to plow down those sand dunes, because if you do, um, you get too much sandy soil, and that's not a good solution either. So the solution that the forestry department, which was very young, came up with was to plant these pine trees. And, and so that was an experiment, planting the pine trees on that sand dune to see if that would work in stabilizing that surface and in keeping all the sand from blowing all over the place. And so it not only stabilized the surface and stopped erosion, but it also ended up inadvertently, I mean, his goal was not to keep the sand dune in place, but in fact, it did. So it's really kind of neat how, um, without, you know, that the experiment in this case preserved the natural feature. Well, thank you, um, professors Arwagast and Goldstein, as well as PhD student uh, Terry Brock, for coming in and educating our community about the 16,000-year-old sand dune recently discovered, as well as the recent findings this past Friday of College Hall. Thank you for coming on the program. Our pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on the Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And in the studio, I have um, MSU Democrat uh, president, president of MSU Democrats, Mitchell Rivard, and he's here to talk about the rally at the Capitol today that was held regarding the Promise Scholarships. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me in. So what is the Promise Scholarship? Yeah, the Michigan Promise Scholarship uh, was signed into law by Governor Jennifer Granholm in 2006, uh, which gives up to $4,000 to 96,000 college students uh, across the state of Michigan. Uh, It's a merit scholarship, meaning that students... uh, you know, had successful test scores in high school and were granted the money. Um, And it's something, again, that 96,000 students across the state of Michigan um, received this year. And um, Granholm proposed to get rid of this Promise Scholarship scholarship this summer. Um, And when will the final decision be made? Yeah, this was something that was actually, uh, Governor Granholm has actually said that she would like to keep the Promise Scholarship, but it's something that... uh, the Republican-controlled uh, Senate uh, in the Mich- Michigan legislature has uh, proposed the cut to uh, 
eliminate the scholarship completely. So this is something that's still ongoing. Uh, we have nine days until the budget has to be passed on September, September 30th, and we have a $2.8 billion deficit this year. Um, but this is something, you know, where the promised scholarship is continual, continually in jeopardy uh, with these looming cuts. Interesting. It's called the Promise Scholarship. <laughs> and it was a promise made in 2006, uh, but it may not be a promise anymore. So Now, you've rallied before um, for the Promise Scholarship. Um, what, what were your goals for the rallies? Yeah, you know, we, we had around 100 students today at the Capitol uh, rallying to save the Michigan Promise Scholarship and to say that we want to keep the scholarship completely funded. Uh, one of the, you know, alternative methods that have been, has been suggested uh, is to reduce the amount of money that's actually given to students down, you know, from $4,000 maybe to $2,500. Um, you know, we as students stood together today with our uh, senators and representatives that support us and said that's not acceptable um, and that we need to continually fund the Michigan Promise Scholarship in its entirety, you know, the $4,000 for those 96,000 students uh, because that's really an investment in Michigan's future. Uh, this is something where if we invest that money uh, in their higher education, we, you know, we think we're going to have a greater return in the future uh, in terms of keeping those students in our state, um, having you know, high-skilled jobs in the state, uh, and really making a more prosperous Michigan going into the 21st century. And they were also talking about um, turning the Michigan Promise Scholarship into a tax credit in which those eligible who had the Promise Scholarship would receive um, the remaining money that they didn't receive during college um, as a Michigan income income tax credit after graduation if they remain in Michigan. So that was another one of the... Yeah, and this is, again, something where we are continually lobbying uh, our efforts, uh, you know, students from all across the state today saying we need to fund it completely. Uh, concerning the tax credits, you know, we've you know, just like everyone else in the state, these families and these students have sat down, budgeted and allocated this money already in their budgets to pay for college, especially with the 5.3% tuition increase we saw here at MSU this year, uh, and to essentially yank the rug under, you know, from underneath these families uh, and students' feet at this time during our economic recession, uh, that's not acceptable. We need to, you know, fully fund the promise. And, and what can people do, granted that they're going to be deciding on the budget on September 30th, what can people do to, I guess, voice their opinions and or try to try to um, keep the Promise Scholarship as of now? Yeah, this is something where, you know, we have nine days to go until the budget needs to be passed. Uh, you know, we are... Uh, we firmly believe that a decision is going to be made in these next nine days. And so any student who receives a Promise Scholarship or any concerned student, parent, citizen uh, should call their you know, state representative, state senator's office, let them know their opinion, you know, let them know that they should keep the Promise Scholarship. Um, you know, we need all hands on deck. We need everyone to be there uh, to speak loud and clear and say we need to keep the promise. Well, thank you very much, Mitchell Rivard of MSU Democrats, for coming in to talk about the rally held today at the Capitol regarding Michigan Promise Scholarships. Thank you so much. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. 
Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, The Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Prime Time. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio I have chemical engineering professor Jeff Sakamoto, and he's here to talk about how MSU MSU researchers lead the way in alternative energy here at MSU. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. So what is alternative energy? Uh, Well, I guess these days we define it as something uh, that does not involve combustion. So instead of burning fossil fuels to make electricity, or burning gasoline to power our cars, we're thinking more in terms of uh, electrification. So right now I'm working on uh, ways to generate electricity. So there's actually Professor Morelli. Uh, uh, he's the PI, profe- uh, Principal Investigator, for a, a new DOE center that we started here um, that's working on technologies to convert heat into electricity. So that's uh, one aspect of alternative energy that we're doing here at MSU. And then once you generate that electricity, there's also the, uh, the aspect of storing that energy in terms of energy storage technologies like batteries, like lithium-ion batteries. So that's something else that I've been working on here. And we've also started a center in our department. It's CESERT, C-A-E-S-R-T. It stands for the Center for Advanced Energy Storage Research and Technology. And the focus there is on developing lithium-ion batteries here in Michigan. Well, excellent. Now, um Alternative energy has been talked about a lot, um, you know, being, especially in Michigan, you know, Governor Granholm tried to change your house to be more energy efficient with solar panels and things like that. Um, and, you, and it's been talked a lot, a lot in the media. Now, have a lot of institutions tried to create new forms of alternative energy like we are here at MSU? Um, absolutely. And I think that's the key there. And the key with um, solving some of these global issues uh, whether it's global warming or uh, shortage of energy or access to fossil fuels, it, there's no one silver bullet that's going to solve all of, of the world's uh, energy problems. So we're looking at a, multi, you know, a full spectrum of energy technologies, um, from solar to wind energy to waste heat recovery, like I mentioned, and then also methods of storing energy. Now, you're, you're, aren't you specifically working on, the, uh, on a battery portion of yes. the alternative energy? Now, and, and is that for, for vehicles? It's for vehicles, and it's also for stationary power. So I mentioned uh, wind energy and solar energy. Um, the sun doesn't shine all the time. The wind doesn't blow all the time. So if you're making electricity, you have to store it also. And it's best that you store it close to where you make it. So the idea here is to make large batteries and put them wherever you're, you're generating electricity from wind or solar. And the challenge there is if you're going to make large sample, large, um, large uh, batteries, they got to be cheap. Right. Um, now, they've been trying to make battery-operated cars, um, and why hasn't it worked, and how far in the future do you see it happening? Um, well, again, it kinda, it's tied to cost. Right. So, well, it's cost of the batteries, and then it's the cost for um, gas. So I'd say I'm probably one of the few people in the nation that likes to see uh, gas prices go up. So, you know, because when the gas prices go up, you know, there's a much bigger push for alternative energies. So, and then from a feasibility standpoint, you know, maybe people are willing to buy an electric vehicle that has a, a little bit more of an expensive drivetrain that's powered by batteries. 
Now, there's uh, a few professors that are trying to convert plant materials into fuels. Um, how does that work? That I'm not an expert in, so I don't think I should prob comment okay. on that one. Sorry about that. Oh, that's fine. Um, and, and how many people are involved in this project? Oh, we have six, um, six faculty as part of the, the battery research program. And the other, the, the waste heat recovery program, working on thermoelectrics that converts yeah, heat into electricity, that has six faculty here. But MSU is a lead uh, institution. There are other, several other faculty, I think eight other faculty across the nation that are working on that. And, and where do you see alternative energy 10 years from now? Is this something that's going to take a long time to get going, um, or do you see it happening fairly soon? I think that if the gas prices get back to the way they were last year, you know, four and a half, five dollars per gallon, I think we're going to see it. Well, actually, I think we'll see it inevitably in just a few years. I think that, um, say, for example, um, there's the Chevy Volt. Um, they plan to put that in full production in 2011. The Toyota Prius, they are going to convert that to a lithium-ion battery quite soon. And so I think that uh, it's inevitable, and I think the cost of batteries, it's kind of like a chicken-and-the-egg scenario. If, if we have, you know, large-scale production, it's going to bring the cost down. But we don't know what that cost is going to be until we go into large-scale production for these batteries. And, and what are your hopes for this project? Well, I hope to, to accelerate that process. I hope to, to be a part of – I'm working with a company – uh, in Ann Arbor, that's part of a bigger company that manufactures lithium-ion batteries here in the United States, one of the very few batteries that makes batteries, lithium-ion batteries in the United States. Most are made in Asia. I hope to uh, have a significant impact on that research, um, making it such that those batteries, three, th three or four things, let's say, making the batteries perform better such that the, the range can be improved, can drive an electric vehicle farther, um, they are cheaper and safer. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Sakamoto, for coming on the show to talk about how uh, the three grants that MSU received in which um, it'll help researchers lead the way in alternative energy. Thanks. Good to be here. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Smoking Helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want mysmokefreeapartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building? Without all that smoking? Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. Mysmokefreeapartment.org. When you get up in the morning and turn on the radio, you don't want to hear those other guys talking on your way to work, do you? You don't want to hear talking. You want to hear music. So here at The Impact, we are making you a promise. We're calling it the More Music Morning's 89-second play. We, The Impact, pledge that every weekday morning from 8 to 10 a.m., we will shut up and play music. We pledge that we won't talk for more than 89 seconds at a time, meaning more music all morning long. We pledge that every caller who requests a song between 8 and 10 a.m., Monday through Friday, will be entered to win a great Impact prize. And we pledge that in return for your listening to us, we will listen to you and play more music that you want to hear. So tune into The Impact for more music mornings. Let us know what to play, and maybe you could win some cool stuff. Only here on 88.9 The Impact. 
You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox, and here in the studio I have Mark uh, Maribate, and he's a screenwriter in Hollywood who grew up here in mid-Michigan, and as a part of the One Book, One Community event, uh, he'll talk about how books translate to the big screen, and he'll be speaking tomorrow at 7 p.m. in the Lincoln Room at the Kellogg Center. Welcome to the show, Mark Maribate. Thank you for having me, and thank you for putting me after a chemical engineer. Yeah. (laughs) It's always nice to follow someone with a real degree with uh, someone with my degree, which is film and video. And now, where did you grow up? I grew up just outside of MSU here at Okemos. Oh. And I attended high school there. And then, uh, much to the dismay of many of your listeners, I attended the University of Michigan, where I went to their film video program. But I do still have ties here. My family lives here. And my sister currently attends MSU. And she's in her senior year kicking butt. Excellent. Um, now, where, how long have you been a screenwriter? I've been working uh, professionally as a screenwriter for the last four years. But before then, I had always written screenplays, but paid my bills in other ways, working at movie studios, working at movie companies, um, and also kind of learning my way around a town like Hollywood and uh, trying to get through as many doors as I can. And when the opportunity arose to go full-time as a professional screenwriter, I jumped at it and haven't looked back. Nice. And now you have a, a new TV show coming up? Well, uh, it's uh, it's not on the air per se, yeah, but it is being looked at. And um, it's quite timely, I think. It's about five youngsters who have just graduated from college and are looking for work on Capitol Hill in D.C. And they end up in the office of a freshman congressman. And it's uh, we call it the Gossip Girl meets West Wing. And it's currently being looked at. And with any luck, um, something will happen with that. And maybe you'd see it about a year from now on television. Well, excellent. Um, now, how, how does – you're speaking tomorrow, and, and your topic is uh, how books translate to the big screen. Yes. Now, why does Hollywood so often turn books into movies? Well, there's a variety of reasons, but the key one is is that the story is already written, and it saves a little bit of time. It still has to be adapted, but they know the story. It's there. Um, the other big reason is that um, books tend to have a following. So you've got a built-in audience. Books like The Da Vinci Code, Twilight, were big hits before they said, let's make a movie into them. Uh, I'll be discussing those books um, as well as No Country for Old Men, which wasn't a very popular book, but since a movie came out, it became very popular, um, even though it had won many awards. So there's a lot of reasons, but I'll tell you the key reason is money. They want to make some money. Show business is first and foremost a business, and they recognize when a book like Da Vinci Code sells... 44 million copies or however much it has, that um, they have a chance to make some real money. And they did. Even if you didn't like the movie from the book, it didn't really matter. They knew people were going to go see it. And they did. So it's about the box office. Very much so. But there is a creative element. I think they, too, really have good intentions. They want to stay true to the essence of books and, and really make their core audience happy so that when the second book in the series, Angels and Demons, comes out, people still want to go see that. And do you think it's also an issue, um, do people, it's kind of the easy way out. Like you said, the people, they already have their following with this book. Um, so do you think that they, they don't want to take as many risks with, oh, here's this screenwriter that we've never heard of. 
um, let's just let's just make a movie about uh, you know a book that that's already been written. So is it is it kind of lazy on Hollywood's part to not find these screenwriters and and produce their stuff? Well, yes, much to my dismay, they are a little bit lazy about it. But they do have to find a screenwriter to adapt the books. But yes, in finding material, they could sit and read a bunch of um, speculative scripts which have nothing involved in them, no author of a claim from a book. Um, because, yeah, at the end of the day, they uh, they know, again, that there's a built-in audience to most books. And, in fact, many authors, Stephen King, Nicholas Sparks, have a huge following as names. They're a brand. So you go to their a movie based on their book, you know what you're getting. You don't even read the book. You know if you're seeing Nicholas Sparks. In fact, there's an interesting thing with Nicholas Sparks, which leads to a key word in Hollywood, which is synergy. And synergy is important in all corporate entities, and Hollywood is a corporate entity. I used to think that it was an energy drink condoned by the Catholic Church, but synergy is <laughs> actually um, the bringing together of all the um, corporate elements to make one end product. So, for example, Nicholas Sparks has a new book out called The Last Song, which he wrote to be a movie starring Miley Cyrus. So you take Nicholas Sparks, you take Miley Cyrus, and it doesn't even matter what the book is about, what the story is about, you've got a movie. Okay. Now, did did you read The Soloist? I did, and watched the movie. And and, and what, did you, what did you think about the book versus the movie? Well, I love the book, first and foremost. And I think the movie did as faithful a job of adapting it as they could, but I think there's a lot of constraints with that story, because you walk a fine line. Yeah, the story has the ability, in Hollywood terms, to become too manipulative, to play off of the drama of this gentleman's mental illness um, and, you know, being homeless, all those things. Um, but I think it walked a good line. I think it's basically performance. I think they got lucky. They got someone like Robert Downey Jr. and Jamie Foxx to really pull it off. But at the heart of it, I think it was made because it takes the point of view of the author, Stephen Lopez, the reporter, and that is an everyman situation. And Hollywood loves the everyman because us as audiences can become that person, step into their shoes, and then... Um, really uh, get with the characters and uh, be involved in the movie. And and when, when you're talking about that with books, I, I think about musicals as well, because when, when you have musicals like, let's say, Rent, mm-hmm. that, that they, they come out on film and everybody loves Rent, or, or with Chicago, that comes out, everyone loves Chicago. But me being someone who grew up with musicals my whole life. Mm-hmm. There's musicals out there like Les Mis or Miss Saigon that people don't even know about. Sure. And, and I feel like it's because of the movie industry. That's why, you know, that's why people love Rent in Chicago and they don't know about anything else because of the movie industry and they can introduce people to things like sure. that. Sure. Well, the movie industry has, has, has two great abilities. It can promote something that's already popular and make it even more popular like Mamma Mia. You know, that movie made huge money because it had a huge following as a musical and because people love the ABBA music. But it can also um, bring something that wasn't popular, make it more popular, such as the book I'll be discussing, No Country for Old Men, which after the movie won the Academy Award for Best Picture, suddenly the book sold another 116,000 copies. Um, this time on the book cover, you saw the poster for the movie versus the original book cover. So... Hollywood has an opportunity to do the right thing, which is not just always take things that are popular and make them more popular or make the money off of that. Musicals are a great example because they already have such a huge following. There's a lot of, you know, magazines, articles you can grab from a lot of sources. I mean, if there was a good idea in a fortune cookie, they would try to 
take that and turn it into something because Hollywood is also running out of ideas, which is another appeal for books or nowadays graphic novels like Watchmen. And I mean, those things, they're pretty much already shot as movies because they're graphic novels. You're seeing the pictures, you're seeing what they're going to go shoot. So they don't have to use their imagination. It's ready to go. It's prepackaged. So whether it's musicals, books, or graphic novels, Hollywood is looking and, um, They'll invest a lot of money to bring those things to life because they already see the dollar signs ahead of it. They've done the formula because show business is a business. Now, also with with keeping in mind, you know, people know that they have a following with books. They know that um, it's it's easier to produce something that's already made. Um, and so, and there's also that same idea with with just TV in general, where mm-hmm. there's so much towards. Um, reality TV because mm-hmm. it's easier and they know that reality TV is going to have a certain edge to it sure. and that that's just just blossomed like crazy all over yeah. so so do you think what reality TV is to television um, you know books and let's say musicals are to Hollywood movies now I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's a correlation in there. I mean, at the end of the day, if the numbers crunch, they think, okay, we can draw on the same audience with reality um, that we could if we made a a book into a a popular book into a movie. Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're far away from Survivor the movie or Big Brother the movie. I think those things are there, too. Um, Yeah, they all overlap. I don't know, you know, statistically what the exact overlap would be. But, you know, it's if you look, part of my discussion will focus on the, the rich history of, of written word mixing with visual. And, you know, dating back to cavemen who drew on walls. And, you know, if you had the big wall to draw on, then you sort of like having the big screen TV and all your caveman buddies would come over and watch the football game on Sunday. But you also have... Uh, a rich history in cinema dating back 1915, for example. The fir- one of the first most first blockbuster movies was based on a book and a play. And no matter the merits of the movie, it was called Birth of a Nation, uh, 1915 silent film. So it's always been there. The written word combined with visual has always been there. And it will continue to go because, um, you know, at, at a basic level, there's human curiosity. We want to see how something written translates to something visual. What are they going to do? How are they going to interpret it? Unfortunately, I would say 90% of people walk out of a theater after watching their favorite book demolished into a movie saying, maybe I'll just read, continue reading the book. But there are those rare examples that, um, that are able to live as movies and as books. And, and I'm also I'm thinking about a class that I'm taking right now. It's, it's opera history and how mm. um, in, in the beginning of opera, they used to only do plays about Greek mythology. Again, the same idea where you have something pre-made um, that's already been there, and then they perform that. And, and once you started creating stories um, that, that, that hadn't been written, that was kind of, ooh, they're kind of on edge with that. Um, so, so I guess you see that throughout all of history. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, dating back as far as what you just described, as long as people could tell stories, they found a way to do it, uh, whether it was the written word, orally communicated, or if they don't speak the same language, uh, you know, through clicks and other strange sounds. So people have always found a way to do that. And I think that's a great example. In fact, Greek history has been used... Um, uh, God, in so many in so many ways, Shakespeare drew from it, um, the Matrix drew from it. You name it. So that's I'm, that's sure that's a very interesting class. Operas, operas are like any uh, facet of entertainment. They need to draw people in, and they can use 
what people already know, what's already written, to help hedge their bets, as I say, about Hollywood, hedge their bets. So the opera world probably has to do that, too. Well, well, thank you very much, um, Mark Maribate, for coming in and, and discussing, um, you know, uh, kind of a, a, a preview of what people can hear tomorrow night. Um, he'll be talking at um, the Kellogg Center in the Lincoln Room tomorrow at 7 p.m., and he'll be a, a part of the One Book, One community event. He will be talking about how books translate to the big screen. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only Impact Prime Time. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. And on the phone, I have Anthony Grinblatt. He is an MSU alum who has created uh, Cybfolio.com, a multimedia site um, in which you can upload um, portfolios and resumes. And welcome to the show, Anthony. Oh, thank you very much, Emily, for having me. Now, how many people have electronic resumes? Uh, currently on my site right now, or just in general? Um, just uh, just give a, a guesstimate of the percentage of people that use online resumes. Oh, I'd say most of the people these days who are searching for employment uh, do it through the Internet and uh, have their resumes uploaded to uh, some sort of a, uh, a search engine for uh, employment like CareerBuilder or Monster. So I'd say a, a good, I would say, uh, 85, 90 percent of people. And what type of careers do you think asks um, their their prospective you know applicants or employees to um, put resumes online? Well, the the website that I made, Cyfolio.com, is uh, specifically catered to people with uh, more than just a resume, but also a portfolio. Because people, for example, like yourself, who uh, have a portfolio of audio material or journalists in on television, um, actors and actresses, uh, people of that sort, uh, they have more than just a paper document saying what their experience is and where they got their education. So. Uh, those are the people that I would cater to uh, specifically. And, and do you have to be tech-savvy, like for, for your website, for example, that you just put up, um, do you have to be tech-savvy in order to put your stuff online? Not at all. In fact, anybody who has ever uh, opened a MySpace or Facebook page is already more advanced uh, at the techniques. All you do is just put in your uh, personal information, but not too personal. We don't ever ask for uh, phone numbers or social security numbers or even dates of birth. Nothing that'll uh, give away your anonymity other than your name. And um, and you just upload uh, pictures or link videos from YouTube or Hulu or where, 
another site you might have uh, your content, and uh, that's it. And right now we're actually uh, setting up a second part to the database where employers can post jobs that they have available in their companies. So when you apply to that job, all you would have to do is say that my uh, site folio account number is this, and uh, they'll automatically be applied to that job. And um, describe describe how um, SciFolio.com, your website that you created, is, is set up. Well, basically it's set up that it has uh, four parts for a portfolio, which is audio, video, uh, text files for PDFs, and image files for pictures. And uh, there's also a small section to this, too. Uh, for users to uh, indicate where their past employment has been, what their education is, what their special skills are. And uh, those are, I believe, the bare necessities for any employer to know who to hire for the right position. Um, have you ever heard of uh, Resumix? It's you know, I've, I've researched so many sites, I probably have come across that one, but uh, just it doesn't come to mind off the top of my head um, right now. I, I just recently heard about it. It's a program, I, I believe, from what I was told, it's a program in which um, you send your resume um, to you send your resume to this program, and then it 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 picks out the what quote unquote buzzwords based on what type of position you're applying for, and it tells you whether or not your resume um, fits that job description or not. And so, based on the buzzwords that you that you write, it says you know yes, your resume is okay, or no, it's not. Um, and now, now, how important do you think a resume is? Well, a resume is uh, very important. It's uh, the first impression that an employer gets of a person on, uh, unless they're doing direct recruiting face-to-face. Um, so uh, I, I think that resumes, first of all, are very subjective. I've heard people say that you should always list your education first, and I've heard some people say you should uh, list your uh, past work employment uh, first. So it's really what you feel describes you the best. And, and how many different types of resumes have you had to make? Well, I, I've uh, worked in many fields in the past, so I have uh, uh, custom-made resumes on my, uh, uh, my laptop for advertising, for marketing. I used to work in broadcast, so catering to broadcast. And I always encourage people that they should have different types of resumes that cater specifically to what job they're uh, applying for. Excellent. Um, in 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 what type of programs do people use now to post their resumes online? Uh, what do you mean by what type of program? Like, so, so you, you just create a website called cybefolio.com. Um, are there ones that are sib- similar to your website that are out there now that people are using? To the closest one that I have found, there was one. Uh, it was called uh, uh, visualsv.com, uh, and uh, they we pretty much do the same thing that we actually ironically came out at around the same time they uh, launched earlier this year and we offer the same features and uh, we're doing the same things and it's good to have competition and that's what's great about America is that uh, there's always room for competition and I wish them all the best and hopefully they wish me the best too. Well excellent well th- thank you very much Anthony Grinblatt for uh, calling in and talking about your new website uh, com. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And and I guess I want to follow up with one more question. Um, sure. What? So you, you're an MS, MSU alum. What what inspired you to make this program? 
Well, uh, when I was going into my senior year, I was uh, I was doing a double major in advertising and telecommunications, and I began applying to different companies. And I noticed that a lot of them were asking uh, on their websites, "Do you have a link to your own personal website or someplace where you have a portfolio?" Because the industry that I've gone into, advertising uh, and broadcast, requires uh, employers to see some of your material. And I started looking around the Internet, and I really didn't see a lot of websites that catered to that. I saw uh, some websites that only catered to videos and some websites that only catered to images. And I started talking with some of my friends who were in the departments with me, what they were using for their professional portfolios. And I was very surprised that a lot of them were saying, oh, we just use YouTube, or I use my MySpace page, or Fotki.com. And... Uh, I thought those aren't very professional websites. Those are more social media websites. And uh, I saw a need for something a little bit more professional. Well, excellent. Again, thank you very much, Anthony Grinblatt, for calling in and talking about your website, uh, cybfolio.com. That's C-Y-B-F-O-L-I-O.com. Yes, well, thank you for having me on, Emily. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on the Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. And before we get to the final part of Exposure, it is called the uh, um, the, the storytelling uh, portion of Exposure, um, a, new, a new series that we have. Um, before we get to that, I want to read the, the day's news as well as some events that are coming up this week. Um, in World News today, today, according to the United Nations, some 100 heads of state gathered at the UN today for an unprecedented day-long conference in combating climate change, with leaders like President Obama and Hu Jintao of China acknowledging that agreement is an important goal but also stressing their own needs. Negotiators have been struggling to hammer out a deal to cut global emissions by December in Copenhagen, and the United Nations organizers are hoping that gathering the leaders will give the talks er, the talks new political momentum. Mr. Hu said that while China has made great strides in development, it still is lagging relatively in terms of its wealth per individual, and that had to be taken into account in fighting emissions. And in national news, severe flooding in North Georgia has killed seven people, submerging homes, knocking out power and turn steam streams into rivers while refilling reservoirs after a lengthy drought in southeastern United States, according to Reuters. Governor Sonny Perdue asked President Barack Obama today to declare a state of emergency for Georgia because of the flooding, which a state climatologist said the wor- is, has been the worst in 100 years in some parts of Atlanta. 
And in Michigan news today, Michigan lawmakers are negotiating towards a budget deal with the deadline now eight days away. Legislative leaders say they hope to have agreements on most of the 15 bills that make up the budget by the end of today, according to Michigan Public Radio Network. And in events for this week, um, on Wednesday is the Non-Motorized uh, Transportation Plan Workshop. That's uh, Wednesday at the Hannah Community Center, where you can share your ideas about bicycle and pedestrian improvements in East Lansing. And on Thursday is the Library Films Series as part of the One Book, One Community event. Um, it is uh, the film called Once. It's a modern-day musical about a street musician and an immigrant in Dublin. And also on Thursday at the Wharton Center, uh, there will be a live performance by Willie Nelson and family. For more information, you can go to 1-800-WHARTON. And then on Friday is a Metro Space concert featuring performances by Jeremy Quinton and Breathe, I Will Breathe. And also on Fridays, the 10-pound fiddle presents the Gordons, uh, in which a guitar, auto harp, and dobro music influenced heavily by traditional bluegrass and folk music. That's 8 p.m. at um, the Unitarian Universalist Church. And on uh, on Saturday is the Waldemar Nature Center American Heritage Festival. It is featuring live music, uh, live history displays, hands-on children's activities, pontoon rides, and more. It's Saturday, September 26th from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. and Sunday, September 27th um, from 11 p.m. to 4 p.m. And uh, without further ado, here is the storytelling portion of Exposure. And if you have a story you want to tell, you can email me at exposure at impact89fm.org. And um, up next is uh, features a journalism professor and former Detroit Free Press staffer, Rodney Curtis. And this is off of his blog, uh, Spiritual, Spiritual Wanderer. And this is Humor in Hard Times here on Impact Exposure. Thanks, Emily. How do I look? Is this okay for radio? <laughs> As I said earlier, I was laid off from the Detroit Free Press, and I did a lot of blogging about my life in layoff land. And I came to MSU, and they want to put me on the radio. So, all right, this is going to be fun. Here's one of my favorites from spiritualwanderer.com. Humor in hard times. I knew things weren't good at my company when they closed down half the bathrooms in our building. The economy was going down the toilet, but we sure weren't. It made me laugh. It shouldn't have, though. Still, when everything around you is falling apart, you can either laugh or cry or drink another beer. I've chosen the American way, and I'm doing all three. It was a little more than a year ago when I first started hearing and reading about comparisons between now and the Great Depression, so my optimistic side tells me that it can be less than a year before this whole mess is over. My pessimistic side points to the entire decade of the 1930s in size. I was heartened to read a report that teens in this country want to know what's going on with the economy and are willing and eager to help their families out. While having this discussion with my wife, my own teen daughter chimed in, Dad, I can always get a job, you know. She said it with a bit of disgust, but not because of the distaste that employment would bring, but because we hadn't considered that option. Optimistic side, two points pessimistic one. My buddy points out that this economic collapse can lead to a whole lot more community building and neighbor helping neighbor. My wife thinks that nowadays it's okay and in fact important to ask the more personal questions of her friends. How's your job? Everything going okay emotionally? Does your husband sometimes stare blankly at a computer screen thinking about what to write next? Can there be beauty in the breakdown as the old frou-frou song suggests? 
when the world is running down, can we make the best of what's still around as the police sing? I guess we won't really know now because both groups have split up. Oops, score one more for pessimism. I think it's important that we realize we're all in this together. <laughs> yes, like the Disney song says. Not just in our neighborhood, but our city. Although one could argue that my town, Detroit, has it really bad. But across the country, and indeed the whole planet, such a globally shared experience is a rare occasion. From Ann Arbor to Addis Ababa, people are all going through the same thing. Although Go Blue or the Michigan Fight Song probably don't sound nearly the same in their native Waialita dialect. We're going to make it through this, I tell myself. We have federally insured banks, unlike back in the 30s. We have unemployment pay. Thank God, since my company, the Toilet Terminators, gave me the old heave-ho heave recently. And we have the shared memory of our elders who have been through this before. No, we have no idea where it's all headed, but we do know we're a race of humans who put men on the moon, built the Panama Canal, fought off hatred in World War II, and created Brangelina. If we can do all those things, then we can certainly do optimism. You're tuned to Impact Exposure again. That was journalism professor and former Detroit Free Press staffer Rodney Curtis. And again, if you have a story that you want to tell on air, email me at exposure at impact89fm.org. And uh, you are tuned to Impact Exposure. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.